Hey everybody, it is Richard Harris and Scott Lease here with another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast brought to you in part by our sponsors at Lead411, Gong.io and Salesforce Revenue Cloud. We always appreciate their support. Um, and we have with us a guest who was a, they, they sponsored for a while, a while back, but is the CEO and founder. I don't know if it's a co-founder, Michael Litt from Vidyard. So uh, Michael, thanks for joining us, man. We're, we're super excited to have you. I'm really excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this one. And uh, I do have a co-founder. His name is Devin. Okay. He's the much smarter version of me. Okay. So, so you're the face man and he's the brains. Is that the, the deal? Well, it was really funny. Uh, when we were at Y Combinator, we didn't have titles. And in the very first meeting, I was the one who answered a lot of Paul Graham's questions, who's the founder of Y Combinator. And so he said, you're going to be the CEO. And Devin, who was quiet, is going to be the CTO. And basically that meant I was the one who was going to pitch investors at Demo Day. And, and I was the one who's going to drive pipeline and, and sell the product while he was building it. And that's stuck. We haven't changed it. <laughs> Does that, is, is that surprise you? Like that's, that's a really, I've not heard that story coming out of that. Like, I know there's a lot of people who go into to places like Y Combinator and you're like, we're co-founders. We want to be equals and we don't want to have titles. And, you know, was that a hard thing to, I mean, in some ways, is that a hard thing to get over? Cause you were trying to like set the culture there or just, you know, really, we didn't really know. So it was okay. Not really. Like, I think to be completely transparent, neither of us wanted to be CEO uh, because of, you know, how those responsibilities shake out at scale and, you know, not having a ton of executive leadership experience. That's something that, you know, we've both developed greatly. We went to YC and, and, and re the reason we got into YC is, you know, we were, we existed to solve a customer problem, which, you know, in the various earliest days were, large businesses trying to organize video content, publish it to the website, add some interactivity and understand who's watching it for how long. And we had customers. So, you know, we saw solving that problem was the most important thing to us, how we did it and whose title was what and what each of us did mattered less as long as we were being successful and playing to each of our individual strengths. And that's just how it happened to shake out. Do you think that, do you think that's common in, those early stage startups where it's like, look, we, we could care less about this shit. Like let's focus on just solving this problem. Yeah. I feel like something, you know, PG has said in the past and, and would say in terms of uh, signal recognition for successful founders is that the less you care about your title, the more successful you're probably going to be because you're focused on the right things. YC's, you know, our unique program in that they work very hard to strip away a lot of the complexity of starting a company and a lot of the things that defocus you, you know, startup founders often, you know, feel like they're being productive when they're, you know, building employment contracts and incorporating the business. But unless you're building product and talking to users, you're not making any progress. And so YC is all about building product and talking to users. And we were, we were obsessed about that. Um, I mean, we were, we were so obsessed about that. Like we had a list of our customers' names. I was calling them regularly. I built a deep and um, foundational relationship with one of those early customers. Her name was Donna. And uh, we got, you know, so close that we ended up, ended up getting married. Uh, and, you know, that's... Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Say that again? Yeah, so I married our, our first customer. 
uh, interestingly <laughs> enough. Now this is the first gotta, story. We've never heard this that. That'd be a first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, early on, like there was a handful of customers that really and truly cared about what we were doing and gave us the time and attention we needed to build a better product. And one of those customers was, her name was Donna. She worked at a startup called Tribe HR and, and was trying to automate their customer onboarding process with video and chose our product and assumed we were a much larger organization than we were. And so she would call a 1-800 number with a support issue and, and it would go to my cell phone. And she thought we had a routing system, but the truth is at that time, the 1-800 number for sales, general inquiries, press, support, all went to my cell phone because I was the only one who was going to pick up those calls. So, you know, I would take her feedback and we'd, we'd create this big list and, and we would solve Donna's problems. And then um, we were living in San Francisco at the time. We moved back to Waterloo. I had a chance to, to sit down and, and, and meet with her and go through those things. And, you know, we realized we liked each other quite a bit. We built a really strong relationship around, you know, using video for success in her career. And, yeah, we take customer success very seriously at Vidyard, but what a cool, hearing your customers does not scale. Yeah, <laughs> what a cool story. I don't know if you're aware of this, Richard, and I was surprised to see it, but Vidyard was started in 2011. That's 10, 10 plus years ago now. I would have never guessed that. I think if you would have asked me, you know, just off the cuff, I would have said probably five, six years ago. So That's I why, that, yeah, aware. I would... Yeah, I think I, I don't know that I'd heard of them in 2011, but I think I heard of them by about 2013 or 14. And I think that's because I, you know, I switched to consulting at that point. So I was paying attention. Yeah, to that, so the reason I say this is because I was an operator up until about a year and a half ago. So 2011, I moved to Austin. I'm building a, a 300 person strong sales team. We're selling to local SMBs no video prospecting on my mind whatsoever. 2013 through 15 or 16, building a company called Outbound Engine, email marketing, social media marketing, no discussion of video. 2016, I go to Qualia, we're selling, uh, it's a property tech company, we're, we're, we're selling software to title insurance companies. Now video begins to kind of be in my periphery. So why do you think it took somebody like me, who's been an operator and leading sales teams, why was there that like five to six year kind of um, timeline where you were growing the, the company, but it wasn't on somebody like my mind as, as a tool, as a, as a touch point? Why did it take people like me so long, you think? Yeah, I think there's, there's a really simple answer to that, um, which is, you know, Vidyard started as a premium video hosting solution that primarily sold to marketing teams. And it wasn't until 2017, 18, 19, that we started experimenting with the product landscape around asynchronous video in the sales process. And in fact, we launched that product in 2018, I believe, on Product Hunt. So we wouldn't have been in your, on your radar simply okay. because we hadn't built a product in a business model. We'd experimented with products for the sales process. Our first version of it was you would upload a PowerPoint into Vidyard and then present over it. And that would compile a video asset that you could then send to a customer. We called that Vidyard Studio. Cool idea, cool concept. 
we didn't have the go-to-market motion to, to drive awareness over it. And then when the, when the Chrome extension landscape matured to the point where we could use a Chrome extension to do a screen recording of any type of software, not just a PowerPoint file or a PDF, but anything on your screen, as well as capture content from your webcam. And we recognized we could launch that product for free. Uh, and we recognized that there were these new channels like the Chrome store, the Outlook store, you know, our integration partner, Salesloft, et cetera. Um, we started to really invest in that, in that product. And so I'm not surprised in the sales ecosystem. You know, I think our organization's really only three years old. Yeah. Um, okay. But as a whole entity, yeah, we, we, uh, we were in Y Combinator in 2011. That makes more, that makes more sense. And I feel like I'm off the hook now. So I appreciate that. that hey, it's all good. It's all good. I've, I've heard that before. <laughs> uh, would you, would you advise startups and founders to, to, you know, still go the kind of accelerator route, the Y Combinator kind of route? What, can you talk a little bit about some of the pros and cons of, of that experience? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, um, so I wear, I wear two, two hats. Um, my primary hat is as the CEO and founder of Vidyard, uh, co-founder of Vidyard, um, my other hat is as the general partner of a venture fund called Garage Capital. Yeah. And uh, we've invested about $50 million into the ecosystem of companies as a partnership. That's been about 90 deals total, 90 to 100 deals. Um, and so from that process, you get to see companies that come through a wide variety of accelerators and, uh, and various programs. And... PG, Paul Graham, who I really respect, said something once upon a time, which really resonated in that there was a huge volume of companies that were applying to YC that had been through accelerators, but had not been accelerated. And I see that as well. Y Combinator gets this mix really, really right. It's for profit. The advice and perspective they provide you comes from successful operators and those two elements, I think, are really critical because it makes YC look more like an investor and less like an accelerator. I don't consider YC an accelerator. I consider it an investment program, um, whereas there's a lot of other accelerator programs and you know, a lot of them no longer exist where uh, the funding wasn't there. The team that was operating them weren't successful founders and operators, um, and they weren't necessarily for profit. Canada is flush with these. Because they weren't for profit, nobody had a vested interest in seeing the companies actually succeed. And so YC just had this like, you know, foundational curriculum and knowledge and, and being a part of that program, getting exposed to the peer network, getting exposed to the alumni network just forces you to level yourself up. Because my experience with YC was this constant feeling of not being good enough and having imposter syndrome for being there. I, I would go to Tuesday night dinners and talk to some of my batchmates and just feel like I was in the wrong place. Like I, I felt like I got a letter for Hogwarts, but I was a, I was a muggle. Like I, you because, know. because like they're just off the charts, like, Oh my gosh, these people are brilliant. Their, their ideas and products are amazing. And like, who am I like that normal kind of imposter syndrome or, or more academic, academic pedigree, um, company pedigree, like just the volume of people coming out of, you know, the Googles and the Twitters and the Facebooks and PayPal's of the world uh, to go and start companies, you know, versus, you know, me from University of Waterloo, Blackberry, you know, the reality is that's a pretty, you know, great, great makeup and a resume. But, um, you know, I think as founders, 
you know, you have to be really self-critical and, and, you know, I appreciated that in retrospect, that imposter syndrome sensation, because it really pushed me to, to, to push myself and my skill set, and, and what happened in that, and I think it's relevant to what we're talking about here today, is that it pushed me to be a go-to-market hustler, right? Because YC is about hackers and hustlers, and if I knew I couldn't cut it on the technical side, I knew what I could do is generate pipeline and upside for our business and revenue by doing 100 outreaches a day and building a system that got me the data and information so that I could do that, and, and that mentality persists in the company today. And so the imposter syndrome forced me to get outside of my comfort zone and do something that I knew nobody else in that program was really good at. And it allowed us to stand head and shoulders above a lot of other businesses at demo day, which allowed us to raise money relatively easily and, you know, set the momentum for the business up. How do you, how do you keep that culture of, I love what you said, hackers and hustlers, right? How do you keep that as you grow? How big, by the way, how big is Vidyard right now? Uh, about 270. Okay. Um, With uh, 52 open roles. Um, if uh, people are listening, this thing is interested and we're now a distributed organization, we hire wherever. That's awesome. But, so how do you keep that, right? How do you keep that ha- hacker hustler mentality, right? Yeah. Change as you go to 500 and 1,000 employees. Yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, aspects of those mentalities can be, can create dysfunctionalities at scale. Um, Because, you know, being a hacker, rushing stuff through to production for customers is what you do when you're very small and you're allowed to do that. But when, you know, you're hosting videos for very recognizable fortune 100 companies that are on their homepage, you can't screw that up. And so more process and policy needs to certainly come as the company scales on the hustler front, you know, what I was doing a hundred outbounds a day, uh, you know, I did that for six months straight, um, isn't really scalable, but what you have to do is take the best aspects of that and the healthiest and most scalable aspects of that. So, so how, it, how it relates to hacking is we ship code, uh, on a daily basis, right? We run weekly sprints. What are we going to accomplish? What's it going to look like? That's something that has never stopped in the business. Another one on the hustle side is, you know, all BDRs, concierges, account executives are responsible for generating their own pipelines still. There's nobody in the organization that's allowed to just, you know, sit there and inherit inbound. It's an expectation from the whole organization. And it's one of the things that drives overperformance. And so, you know, those are a couple small things that, that we've instilled in our culture but there's even stuff like, you know, I've got this letter from uh, PG again during YC. I was trying to sell to Airbnb and Airbnb was a much smaller organization at the time. I was working directly with the co-founders. They had chosen a bigger vendor, uh, a well-known vendor for their premium video hosting solution. And um, Paul Graham had helped with the introduction and, you know, bummer, they're not going to go with us. So I forwarded him the note and he responded with a one-line email that said the negotiation begins at no, Joe Cross. And I printed that email out. And for the first many years of Vidyard's life, that email was printed and hung on every single sales rep's desk because a lot of the best things have happened in my life and in my career after the first approach was a no, right? Um, A no is obviously a no, 
but often creates other opportunities elsewhere and an opportunity for a new line of questioning and a new line of exploration that can create other opportunities. And, you know, one of the things we've trained all of our reps on is if, if you don't win the deal, you still have an opportunity to ask that client for references to other customers or peers in their network or, you know, people that they think might be a better fit for your technology. And that's how you self-source pipeline, right? There's, so I'm going to put your you know, I'm going to put your query to the test. When when you first asked your wife out, did she say no because she was a customer? <laughs> well, it's it's actually funny. So we uh, long story short, we went we went to meet to talk about our our respective solutions, and we were actually implementing her solution as our HR management tool in the business. And we went out for um, for beers after work, and then uh, you know we just kind of realized we were actually on a date. And that's kind of how, how it all started. So it was very organic, which is, you know, I think the that's absolute awesome. best way. That quote about the <clears throat> negotiation begins at no. Um, one part of it that I always focused on, and I have no idea if this was like, I just inferred my own meaning. It was really, that's when the negotiation with yourself begins. Because that's when you sort of are deciding like, well, how fucking bad do I really want to make this deal happen? How bad do I really want to make this sales thing a career? Can I pick myself back up off the floor? And it's just that, you know, that mental game that anybody selling something has with themselves. That's the negotiation to me. I always took it really like internally and personally. Um, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if any of your, your sellers, you know, took it that way. Not that they had to, but that was that was how I always interpreted it. Well, you know, it's funny, our second account executive hire now leads the entire sales organization. His name is Dan. And, you know, he got to see a lot of this stuff early on. We had one of our largest customers. He was in the business. Um, you know, I had put a seven figure contract in front of them that was going to, you know, be a fundamental breakthrough moment for the business in terms of profitability, raising future financings. Like it was in the bag. They built an RFP based on our functionality that no one else in the market had. And they ultimately chose another vendor purely to mitigate risk, right? Mm -hmm. It's difficult to choose the startup in a lot of these large organizations. That's what makes enterprise selling hard. And unless Forrester or Gartner or IDC are writing, you know, reports about you, which obviously these enterprise buyers use to, you know, cover their ass in the event that, um, you know, they made a bad decision, it's tough to get that visibility. So um, they said, no, and I saw, you know, the world fall down around me. But at the time, you know, we already had 20 people in the business and, you know, I had to put my chin up and figure out what that meant. And because I had that email in front of my desk, you know, I pulled a few people from the company together and said, how do we want to approach this? And so I ended up emailing the CEO of that organization. This was about a 6,000 person company at the time, telling him that I believed that the buying team made a poor decision on the software choice because of functionality and lack of security and a whole bunch of other things we were aware of. And then he sent that email around to the organization, to the CMO, the head of corp dev, the CFO, and all of them got this note from me that basically degraded uh, the quality <laughs> of their, the quality of their decision. And so when that, when that vendor, that chosen vendor fell through, their only choice was to move forward with me because, you know, I had validated what we were able to accomplish via the CEO and we ended did up they, winning that deal back. Did, so, they fall, did they fall through because they lacked the security in those things? Like, was that like, 
like it and so if, for those listening he's you know michael's shaking his head yes um, yes 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 and he did. nailed it he nailed um, it he nailed it so now the comes what's what were the were there repercussions for going around everybody right like that's always the risk like i don't know that we're like i i look i think I, it's you done know right Richard, you know me. I don't worry about that risk whatsoever. I know. I, I, <laughs> Richard I know. worries about that risk. So, well, that's, that's also it. because Richard's not as tactful as Scott. <laughs> in fairness, right? Like Richard's a little bit. Of, there's a reason Richard's, you know, Richard's name is Richard, right? He acts like a Richard. So, um, but was there risk there? Did you, and more importantly, did you notice like this, you know, how dare you, you know, you know, perception of you because you did that. Yeah. So first of all, I had nothing to lose. Right. Right. Which, which is a very unique place to come from in any situation. When you have nothing to lose, you have every option available to you. And, you know, there's a, there's a few unique moments, I think in a, in a founder's life where that is true. And that's at the very earliest of stages. And that's what makes early stage companies succeed because you have nothing to lose. And therefore you have every single option. However, the economic buyer in this case, who ended up, you know, sixth or seventh in this chain of emails forwarded from me and then the CEO of this company, um, when I went to visit them, they said, why the fuck did you email the CEO? Right. Because it made their life difficult. Yeah. And, you know, I described to this individual exactly why I did it. And, you know, I think he was of the mind that he would have done the same thing in my position and ultimately knew there was risk in going the direction that he did. And I hope learned something from, from that particular decision. Um, you know, I think it really depends on the culture of the organization, right? If you've got an organization that has beginner's mind, very learning centric, very development centric, um, very broad um, um, org chart, very horizontal org chart, that stuff's okay. But if you've got a very kind of old school type hierarchical organization where, you know, everything rolls downhill, uh, less likely to be successful using that tactic. But that's my, my perception. Let's talk about how you uh, shifted your distribution strategy, oh. your sales strategy. I, I, I wanted to get into this at some point. Yes. Now, now I feel like we're warmed up a little bit, right? Yes. So talk about how you, you know, started by trying to go after you know enterprise kind of kind of deals and now you've moved to the freemium kind of model and what was that like when you when you rolled it out yeah great question so we were always top down because we couldn't fathom how we were going to build we started as a bottoms up freemium motion with our premium video hosting solution but you know our competitors in the space had a lot of brand equity and, you know, really the, the, the major competitor in the space is YouTube, right? Anybody wants to publish a video to their website, they're going to think of YouTube first. How do you compete with their brand recognition and the status, status quo-ness of, of what they do? So we built premium features we knew they would never build. We went top down at a higher price point. And that was, you know, the first six years of Vidyard's trajectory and, and, and our success. And, you know, got us well into the, the tens of millions of dollars of ARR. Then we started experimenting with, with parallel products. And the, the dream that I always had was how do we use video to connect the sales and marketing process in a company? And we kept hearing this complaint that marketers had, which was we produce all this video content for sales people to use. 
customer testimonial videos, product walkthrough demos, you name it. But the sales professionals always use, you know, whatever they find relevant to them and always complain that marketing doesn't produce good enough content. So we realized, okay, there's a, there's a product here that fits inside of the sales reps workflow that gives them access to the video content that marketing has produced and even recommends the best videos for them to send in the sales process based on everything we know about what that buyer's watched. Because when you think about someone coming to a website, watching a bunch of videos, that's digital body language, right? If they're watching 100% of that video, they are interested, they're doing their research. And when the sales rep gets that lead, understanding which videos have been watched and for how long really should be you know, the number one indicator of how interested this customer is in, in, in buying. And so we played around with technologies in that space and realized there's an opportunity to build a Chrome extension, an Outlook plugin, desktop app, mobile app, which gives reps access to this content, but also allows them to create it. Now, getting access to that content, that's a very enterprise motion, right? You need somebody in marketing and sales enablement to, to push these videos into the reps' workflows. But building the content, you know, prospecting with video, sending a sales order, walkthrough video, you know, a micro demo to a customer, that's a very sales forward process. And we can test a new business model here. Um, and so we launched that product for free. We launched it on Product Hunt. And within the first week had 100,000 installs and we knew we were onto something. You know, how do you then sell this product into the organization? Thus began this very challenging period where we had a sales team that was very used to inheriting pipeline, which was hand raises, webinar attendees, uh, people that we met at events, people that came by a booth at an event. That was a huge part of our pipeline process. People that, that you know, Mike had called or the BDR team had called and generated pipeline from. That's where our pipeline was coming from. Now all of a sudden we had all these free users and to get more of them, we were gonna be introducing more features and functionality available for free. And the sales reps just couldn't make the connection of how do we sell to an audience that's getting 90% of the functionality for yeah. free? I mean, it's what Slack did, it's what a lot of these companies did. And, and at every step of the way, the sales team felt like we were sacrificing their opportunity for free users and there was this very difficult motion. And, you know, my wife and I were just talking about this on the weekend. Uh, she runs an organization called Uvaro, uh, which is a startup that uh, takes people from non-traditional technology sales backgrounds and runs them through a 12-week boot camp and helps them then find a job. They're incredibly successful. 70% um, of the students are getting jobs in like less than 15 days after completing the program. And, you know, we talk a lot about the challenges salespeople have in, in adapting to change. And if you've been at Vidyard for six years selling the same technology and all of a sudden we're trying to help you understand how to sell tech to a bunch of free users inside of an organization on a license-based model per user versus what you're used to in a platform-based model. And by the way, half of your compensation is tied to your success. There's going to be organ rejection. Yeah. And so what we had to do was consistently tell stories of how we were successful with free users as the very first point of contact with an organization. And what that meant for us, right? If you're generating pipeline from a webinar or an event, you got to spend money on that. But if you're generating it from product, 
the cost of acquiring that user is sunk in the development cost of that product. And so we can then spend the money on advertising the use of that product. And then once we started closing deals where free users were actually the, the very first touch point we had with them, the sales reps started to understand the power of this to the, to the point where last quarter, 68% of closed one revenue via the sales team started with a single free user in an account. And so it's this, it was this very kind of slow process of inverting our model from top-down sales to bottoms-up, where again, these users exist in organizations and it makes the sales reps job so much easier to generate pipeline because they then reach out to the leader of a group of users and say, hey, look, you know, there's a bunch of people using this product. Here's some of the advanced functionality you can get. Are you interested? And by the way, that leader has now heard of us, right? Back to the beginning of this call, you know, you'd never heard of Vidyard back in the day when we were selling top down through the marketing organization. Yeah. Richard, as a sales leader, are you a fan of this freemium kind of model? Would you have freaked out and had resistance? Probably. That's interesting. I think back then, you know, I mean, last time I was actually a sales leader was 2009 or 10. I probably would have freaked out for a lot of reasons. Um, but I, you know, the data is now showing like there's tons of VCs who are talking about the fact that the data shows that freemium works. Like there's, it's ridiculous to not do it. If I were going to create a platform at this point, I'd give it away for free for a very long time, right? Till I could start to monetize it to a certain degree. One thing that scares me about it as a seller is I feel like I'm giving away some of my control, right? Like if I'm doing everything, sourcing, you know, prospecting, pitching, like no matter how hard it is, I control it. Whereas in this freemium kind of model, yeah, if you're getting all these users for me to then convert, I can get, I can wrap my head around that. The part where I lose control is what if you're not getting enough users? Well, so let, so would you be in favor of it, Scott, or not in favor of it? We're going to have Michael respond in a second. Well, this is the part that I still am stressed out by. It's like, so, I'm in so, favor of it if you can actually deliver the numbers to me required in order for me and my team to perform but, well. But isn't, but think about it this way. Your freemium model, my freemium model is all the social stuff we do on LinkedIn. We give away tons of advice for free. Well, right? that's a fair point potentially, yeah. You know, like that's our freemium model, right? And, and you and I have both given away stuff that we do charge people for, but we know it's because it builds value, right? Which I is think- that be, is, that, is that because like, well, I'm just selling myself. So I'm in control of it and it's me and I'm not relying upon somebody else's idea and their product and, and their features. I don't know, I'm asking. Yeah, to some extent, but it's also like, you know, you can still control the message that goes out, right? Michael's not saying you don't control the message around the freemium, right? Like whether it's your newsletter, you could control that, but you let someone else get it out the door for you, so to speak. Michael's sitting here grinning at us, listening to this conversation going. So I'm curious what Michael thinks. I'm going to cut us off. Otherwise, we'll keep going. Yeah, no, it's fascinating uh, to hear the dialogue. I, I think, uh, Richard, you're right. You have to think about it as another pipeline source, right? Free content, access, depth of knowledge. The modern buyer spends a ton of time doing research. 
And the, you know, the biggest limitation to execution in any professional's career is time. So the more time it takes them, if they got to go through an RFP process and a demo and, you know, get a bunch of pitches from sales reps, you know, that's restricting their ability to go execute. They're going to just go find the thing that does 90% of what they needed to do for free. Um, and so as a sales rep, you need to realize my organization is putting our hat in the ring in a way that we need to. Uh, but to Scott's point now, you know, a huge amount of, of dependence exists on the product. The product has to be good. But here's the deal with sales. The product always has to be good. We've probably all been in positions where we've sold a shitty product and it's a lot harder than selling a good product. And so with a free product that's good, you're validated. A free product that's bad, nobody's going to use and the model's going to fall apart anyways, but your company probably wasn't going to be successful either way because it's really hard to you know yeah. scale a business around a shitty product. Fair points. I'll, I'll, let me pull us out of this and, and pivot to another topic that's hot on everybody's mind right now. And I, I'm really, I, I want to commend you for the decision that you've made here because you, you've decided to go distributed for good, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, let people live and work from wherever the heck they are and talk, talk about that because um, I know there's other companies who have made this same decision but then you've got some of the behemoths like Google and Facebook who are pulling people back into the office and, and literally like threatening them. Like you're not going to have a job if you don't come back. And I've got at least one client who is stuck on like, no in office only in this particular city. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, we've got to like, I think that that world is done. So I'm, I'm excited and proud to see companies that I respect, like, like you and like Vidyard move this direction. Can you talk about, you know, what that decision was like, were you, were you all wrestling with it or was it like, Oh, automatic, like, boom, this is the world we're in. We're shifting. Yeah. Great question. I mean, God, what a year it's been. And I'm sure we've all been reflecting on that over the past six weeks and, you know, reading some of the emails and thoughts we had a year ago and thinking, wow, we really didn't fully grasp and understand the extent of what this meant. Um, you know, we've been a very in-office oriented culture. Like, you know, everybody got lunch together, hung out in the lunchroom. We had lots of events. We had, you know, beer on tap, you know, foosball tables, all the tech tropes, all the brewery tech tropes that ever existed. And to be honest, I have since seen those tech tropes as massive limitations to discovering our company's potential in terms of optimizing, you know, the diversity and equity of our talent pool. And also, you know, limiting ourselves to areas where we had geographic office presence, you know, limited our exposure to the broadest talent pool and the best people that were yeah. aligned to our mission, right? Now, back in the day, people might have chosen to work at Vidyard because it was a cool local company. Now people choose to work at Vidyard because they have more choice because it's solving a problem they care about, which as an employer is a dream scenario. So I think what happened is, you know, we realized this pandemic, you know, doesn't just end. Even with a vaccine, it doesn't just end. Um, you know, there's, there's multiple mutations and variants of this virus. It's likely going to be with us in some capacity. And that started to become clear to us in the summer. We said, look, we have to ensure that there's a set of policies and frameworks in place to optimize our success as a distributed company. Let's look at the pros and cons. And we came away with way more pros than cons to moving forward in this model. Yes, people want to interact. 
So, you know, I can talk about the hybridization and how we plan on allowing that to happen in the future, because it's important for, you know, human to human interaction when that's available. But here in Ontario, where I am right now in Waterloo, Canada, you know, we're on a province wide lockdown, stay at home order, like other areas of the world, you know, where, you know, vaccines are more, are more heavily distributed. People are starting to get together again. So I think it comes down to two factors. One is 70% of knowledge workers have indicated they want the flexibility of working from home. So the marketplace has spoken. If we want access to that 70% of talent on a global basis, we have to adapt our skill sets to it. And then McKinsey did this analysis where they ran through thousands of companies in the B2B space and found that 70 to 80% of B2B buyers said they don't even want to meet their sellers in person anymore. They'd much rather buy stuff in this way. Why is that? Time, right? Yep. You save so much time through using asynchronous video, through using synchronous video, through using asynchronous messaging technologies, you know, using recorded demos that can be shared inside the companies that not everybody has to be on Zoom call all the time. Like obviously this is Vidyard's business. And so there's so many signals that indicate that, that we need to do this. So, so now the question is, how do we get this right for the next you know, generation of Vidyard? And the weird thing is we've hired a lot of people through this period because it's been, um, pandemic's been a tailwind for us based on all the reasons I just described. And now we have people that have joined the company that only know remote Vidyard and distributed Vidyard. And there's people that remember what it was like to be in the office. And those two cultures have a risk of clashing and being unproductive unless we can, you know, really and truly optimize the way we're interacting and the way we're working. And so we're in the process of building these policies. What we're going to do is we're going to have locations in key areas where people can go hang out. They're called collaboration centers. So instead of having, you know, 10 floors in one city, we're going to have one floor in 10 cities. People can get together. They can collaborate face to face. However, if there's a meeting, where one person is distributed or remote, everybody has to jump on Zoom. There's no second-class citizen where, you know, you're in, a, you're in a meeting room and five people are in that meeting room and yeah. one person's on Zoom, that's misses sexy. all the inside jokes, all the pre-post conversation. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, this, that's the standard and default practice. And from there spawns a whole bunch of, you know, policies and frameworks and, and ideals for working that we're still, still developing but of course we're still in this pandemic. And so it's all about optimizing for distributed. How much are the employees engaged in creating this process? Because it's affecting them the most, right? Yes, 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 yes. So, so one of the things we did early on is say, okay, everybody is getting Zoom fatigue. Um, you know, Zoom, just taking what we did in person, moving it to Zoom, that's not gonna work. How do we use asynchronous video communication to better everybody's day and provide more flexibility. What does, you, you've mentioned this term a couple of times, define yeah. asynchronous communication. Yeah. So you get a text message, right? That's asynchronous. You can read that and respond to it on your own time, right? You jump on a phone call or a zoom call that's synchronous. We're in real time. We're talking, we've got an hour. We got to get through the conversation in an hour, right? So the reality is asynchronous exists in voicemail and text, but not in video this is what our product does, right? Recorded video messages. And so what we said was, okay, we've got, we've got parents with kids at home that can't be on Zoom calls all day long. So how do we optimize for their day? So we, we transitioned away from hour long meetings. And I've said, 
no more hour long meetings in the company. If there's a meeting about a topic, the person hosting that meeting has to submit a video walking through the content, the data, and the decision that needs to come out of that meeting. And they need to do that a day in advance of the meeting. The meeting can only be a half hour long. And then everybody gets to consume this content. The creator gets a notification when everybody's consumed it. And then you jump into a shared document, Google, Drive, Google, Google Docs, whatever, where everybody can put down their thoughts. And so you have an asynchronous collaboration session. And then when you get together for those 30 minutes, it's about making the decision. And the interesting thing about this is when you meet, when you get everybody together for an hour long meeting, the loudest voice is gonna you know, capitalize on the entire experience, right? The extroverted person, the most senior talent. And so you're missing out of the, on the perspectives of people that maybe have to digest things more slowly, you know, think about it in the shower, Maybe they're not as quick on their feet, whatever, right? In this model, you get a much more diverse representation of perspectives brought forward because everybody has the time to think about solving the problem and you're giving them the time. So your solutions are much more robust and much more complete. And so we've actually found benefits in moving to distributed based on being able to leverage this approach. And, and now it's about tweaking and honing this. This just, just validates two things for me. One, that I'm right. And two, I suck at scaling shit. Um, one, <laughs> yeah, you know this, right? Like I have been preaching for years, for years, stop walking anybody through a sales deck. Send your deck ahead of time. Let them read it in two minutes instead of wasting their time for 30 minutes. And then your conversation becomes so much more about the decision. You articulated it way better than I just have ever said it. So, uh, but I've been I'm just thinking about all the hours of my life I've wasted in all hands meetings. Oh my God. Where I could have consumed the content on my own time. Yes. And would have, and we wouldn't have wasted my, well, you said you had like 270 people in the company, 270 people doing nothing but watching this one, you know, meeting at the same time, not working, brutal. Yeah. yeah, I do, like, instead of doing all hands meetings and reviews with the company, I just, I do a weekly video. It takes yeah. me 10 minutes to record it. It takes people 10 minutes to watch it. If they've got questions, hit me up in my DMs. I love answering them, um, but it's way more, it's way easier. And I see people watch that video at all times of the day. Some watch it on, right. I sit on a Friday, some watch it right away. I'm getting notifications right now. People are, you know, plugging back in, watching it to kick off their week. Yep. It's just pure flexibility. And that's what the future of work is all about. That's what the future of the buying cycle is all about. It's people don't want to be stuck in this, you know, cubicle from nine to five, stuck in a commute. If work-life integration is what we're all striving for, yep. being able to work in a distributed fashion and buy and sell in a distributed fashion is the only way we can do that as, 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 as a collective humanity. I mean, back in the forties, the promise of software and technology was to shorten the workday and provide more vacation time, right? With the efficiency gains we've gotten from software and technology, we've actually ended up working more. It's just, we're way more productive in every minute of the day, but we have to leverage these solutions in order to give ourselves flexibility and sanity, because you can't just work. You need hobbies, you need lifestyle, you need family, you need friends. Gotta go, you gotta go surf. Gotta have yes. Yes. Absolutely. Right. No matter how cold it is. So, Michael. <laughs> so, Michael, you're gonna come down to, to Costa Rica, right? In November, you're gonna go ahead. I and would. 
I would love to. I, uh, we were chatting just before this call and it's one of my favorite places in the world. I love the culture there and uh, I love surfing without a wetsuit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. If not, if not this year, then maybe next year. Yeah, absolutely. This, this has been awesome, Michael. This is uh, my first chance to speak with you and get to know you a little bit. It's been like a master class for me a little bit. I'm super impressed with you and, and what you're doing and, and the team at Vidyard. As Richard mentioned before, we've been starting to get to know all of you. Um, so just really appreciate you spending some time with us. And I uh, want to thank Salesforce Revenue Cloud, Lead411, and Gong for help sponsoring the uh, Serpent Sales podcast. We try to end every show by saying, how can we be helpful to you? What questions, if any, do you have for us? Or is there anything you want to kind of amplify and give voice to? So this is your, your moment, Michael. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, on the end of the day, Vidyard exists to, you know, support all the things we, we talked about in this conversation. And I'm deeply passionate about solving this problem. So, you know, if I can amplify anything, it's, it's try the Chrome extension or the product in all its various forms. It's available for free. Um, use it in your sales process, not just to prospect, but you know, to, to share demos with customers, walk through sales orders. Again, there's no limitation to what you can do with the free product and you can win back a bunch of time and energy in your day and your buyers will be grateful for the process as well. So that's the only thing I need to amplify. I am curious for both of your thoughts on, you know, how you see trends and a lot of the stuff evolving over the next few years, but I realize that's, you know, that's going to be another hour. So let's do another one of these at some point or yeah. something live in Costa Rica and we can get into this. <laughs> there we go. We could do that. In the meantime, I don't know if you're aware, Lead IQ is doing this absurd sales madness competition. And Richard and I face off against each other in the Sweet 16 this week. So I'm just thinking, Richard, maybe what we should do is we should just go back and forth with little Vidyard videos talking shit to each other. Absolutely. And, and, you know, show everybody that there's more to Vidyard than just prospecting, right? I love that. I love yeah. that. Yes. And then I we can charge that. Michael for sponsoring that. Yeah, say michael we'll do that but you know come on now you know who's the one to talk to tyler tyler lassard <laughs> it's all good man it's all good man this has been so much fun really like super deep and i love that i, I love your management mindset and it's really not just from the product perspective but the people perspective and the performance perspective and all those things that are super matter in, a, in an organization so thanks for sharing all that and i, I hope our yeah. listeners get a lot out of it as well it's been an absolute pleasure i'm a big fan thanks guys Michael. all right bye Cheers.